Welcome to Average Joe Meets the UK's Everyday Entrepreneurs, where we talk to all kinds of business owners across the country about how they got started and what it's really like to run their business, so that we can learn and be inspired to start something of our own. Winston Farquharson, fondly known as Winnie, is the owner of SE20 Cycles, a bike retail and repair shop, and also home of the Penge Cycle Club, which has over 670 members. You can also pop in and have some of the best coffee and cake in South East London, either inside his shop or out the back in the lovely garden, a little hidden oasis on Penge High Street. Winnie tells us how following a disability, which meant that he couldn't walk properly for a number of years, he worked on his business plan for a bike shop and cycling club with the support of disability charity Leonard Cheshire and he finally opened the doors to SE20 Cycles in 2008 in his early 40s. However, he was directly impacted by the financial crash as Barclays Bank pulled his agreed funding just a month before he was due to open. He's really honest about how he managed this adversity and other challenges such as taking on staff, juggling bringing up children, rogue landlords, the pandemic, scaling a business whilst trying to run it at the same time, and his various passionate efforts to try and get disadvantaged children into cycling alongside his business. I guarantee you'll find his approach to business and to life in general really, really refreshing. Hi, Winnie. When I came into your shop to ask you about taking part in this podcast and I said I'd send you an email with the details including what's in it for you, you said you'd long since stopped worrying about what's in it for you. And it's pretty telling that that's how you've made SE20 Cycles a success as a community hub. Whenever I go in there, there's such a lovely welcoming feel. The staff are happy. There's always customers popping in and you seem to know everyone by their first name. However, getting started is a different ball game. So I'd love to know what you were doing before and, and how you got started. Before I had the shop, I had a long history of working in the city, doing one job, which I didn't like, left that to become a cyclist. I wasn't very good at it. Hang on a minute, Winnie. You can't just casually say you became a cyclist. We'll have to come back to that, as I'm no detective, but I think it might just have a part to play in your journey to running your own bike shop. I left that to become a sports therapist which I actually loved. Trained to work and treat sports injuries, recommend I treat sports injuries for, for, for clubs and sports. I worked for rugby clubs up and down the country, London Broncos, uh, Blackheath Women's Rugby Club, England Women's Rugby Union as well. Unfortunately, disability hit me in 2002, and I wasn't able to properly walk until a few operations later in 2006, 2007. So I wasn't actually ambulating properly at all. So not actually working, I was at home, looking after the kids as a home dad. I actually love that, actually. Being at home with my kids daily, he says. As every parent will know, love is a joyous thing, but there are times. But I have to work. I'm the sort of person I just need to be out doing stuff. Other than looking after the kids, I have to do something. So Leonard Cheshire was a, was a body that helped people with disability. And they had a programme running for disabled people to get into business with their help. So I did a course with them, and they were partnered by Barclays Bank. Barclays Bank would assess your business plans and models and ideas and pick the best ones to, to run with. Mine was one they picked, which I, I was very grateful for. Unfortunately, 
that was 2007 to 2008. I opened in 2008, October, September, but in August of 2008, the bank pulled out. Uh, with all the financing. All the financing. So having told me to yeah, pay the rent up front in May, which I did for the first six months, having told me to order your stock, which I did, I then had to cancel all my stock. I had a, a shop opening on the Saturday the 13th of September, and on that day, all I had to do shop was my own bicycle, a few empty chairs, some friends sitting around, and nothing to show oh, in the shop. How did you feel? I cried for weeks, actually. It was a terrifying... I'm getting emotional now. It was a very terrifying experience to go through. That the bank was just pulled out on you, and you've already put your savings and family, friends' money into a business. Now suddenly that's going nowhere. But I think people who know me will tell you I'm very determined, and I just went knocking on doors. Do you need your bike service? Everywhere I could knock all. I didn't. I didn't drive post. I just went went out knocking on doors. Yeah. And if I saw a cyclist, I'd approach them and say, "Look, I've got a bike around the corner. Come look, come have a look." Uh, yeah. But there's nothing in there. There was nothing yeah. you came nothing down. Nothing to buy. Nothing but to buy, no. But, but repairing, um, you, you managed to hustle to get I some I did. I had, the tools I had were my own tools from home. I didn't have professional tools. Oh, gosh. So ever since then, every penny I've earned has gone back into the business, back into the business. So there was no bank, uh, no bank financing bank. ever? Nothing, nothing. Ever. No, oh, they no. pulled out completely. Even after my last training day, they told me on my last training day they couldn't support me. And I do my courses, which is, we do a SciTech course, which gives you one, two, level three of professional training. So we don't just become a bike mechanic, you have to go through the required training. And on my last course when they phoned me up and said, no, you don't, you don't qualify any longer for a loan. What do you mean I don't qualify any longer? You've been pulling me along, I have meetings with this banker here and there and everywhere for months, almost over a year. And have monthly meetings, discussing the business plan, how it's progressing, where we're going next, and now I don't qualify. Oh, you don't meet the criteria anymore. What the heck? And I literally just, yeah, went into one. But... You know, after a few days of crying, I decided to pick myself up and then went for it. And I thought, well, I've already paid rent for the first six months, so nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> the shop needed gutting. Right. I, I hadn't actually factored that into my cost, and the bank hadn't even advised me otherwise. I hadn't factored that whatever should we go into would need remodelling, would need a ceiling, would need walls, would need lights. Oh, right. Would need flooring. What was the shop before? It, it, was, a, it was a household goods shop. Okay. On Maple Road, opposite the school, St John's School, but it may have been empty for a while. Particularly oh, it was a different shop, was it? It was a different shop where I'm, from where I'm oh, now. Oh, I, I see. moved twice. In, oh, right, okay. In Twelve years, yeah. And so I had to go in and put a new flooring down. So I went to home base, put a card account with home base, got the flooring, put the flooring down, paid home base off eventually, mm-hmm. <laughs> bit by bit. But even home base were lovely. The staff they knew what I was doing. They were just helping me out and, and open early so I can get some wood cut properly by them because I couldn't cut all the wood I wanted to cut carried doors down for me and things like that. They were actually brilliant. They were pivotal to help me get me where I was at the time. Yeah. And they didn't actually know me, so they didn't have any reason to do that. So, that, so it was quite nice. That's good. They just show that, again, community-wise, people, they worked in, they lived locally, so they could actually help in the community. Yeah. It was quite, it's yeah. quite useful. So meanwhile, were you financing your life by savings and other things? Oh, savings. Don't know yeah, savings. savings. They, they long since gone. Oh, oh they're long. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, literally my partner went back to work full time. So yeah. she was the saver in that sense. So she yeah. went back to Bit of stability part-time. there. Yeah. She worked in the NHS. So it was actually quite good. It was hard on her too because, you know, we've both been at home part-time with the kids. Then we've both been at home full-time with the kids. And she went to work full-time because I couldn't walk. And so in a way, I was doing what I wanted to do in bringing money back into the family. But at the same time, she had to then lose that time at home with the kids, which is hard for the mother, I'm sure you'd agree. 
to have that time where your kids are growing and suddenly you're not there with them to see those first steps and those first pictures and whatever. Yeah. So it must have been terrible for her at the time. But I was unswayed and I had to get this done, moving and moving yeah. forward. I said at the time, yes, 2008 when we started, the banks pulled out, the session was hitting hard. Mm-hmm. How do you just tell people to come and trust you from where you've been going before? Your trusted baby, your steed, your bicycle, the things you love and you ride every single day. It was hard. I'd go to door, door to door. I'd go people's back gardens and take all, all the around the local area. Not just local, back in um, Penge, uh, Packham, even sorry, Dulwich. I was going all over the place just to just talk to people. Uh, if I saw someone cycling, I'd just stop you whilst I'm walking next so to you. So probably all the keen cyclists in this area probably know you. It's some <laughs> most most would have known me. I've been I've been a pest. <laughs> to go away because we have our shop you go to and people are very loyal as well yes. they go to a certain shop they'll go there for life sometimes you know they're not easy the easiest way to change so was, this... was cycling a big thing around this area at the time it was big in that this is a very big commuter uh, beltway so I sat under this bridge by Penji station for Penji West station for about a month most mornings between 6 and 8 in the morning and then between 8 and 10.30 Counting cyclists, literally just sitting on the bench and counting cyclists. Is this, this was your market this research? Was, this was my market research, yeah. And at one point, I remember counting over 700 cyclists, 700, back in 2007, between 6.30 and 11 o'clock. <laughs> wow. Now, you probably double that. Had Olympics. you chosen Penge as the location, or you were... You, you no, were... the location was chosen for me by my, my disability, because I'm, I'm only just walking. I live in Penge, I live on the high street. Right. I had to have something that I could be close to home mm-hmm. and close to the kids going to school not yeah. picking kids up from school which is another trauma <laughs> running a business with kids oh yeah well that's what I'm going to try and do it's is hard work because I can't tell you the amount of times I left my shop in a hurry at five past three to get one child from preschool from the next child from infant school and left the shop door unlocked <laughs> I've done it so many times in the past no, no one came in and took some bikes I actually came up one day and found somebody sitting there and watching the shop for me because he'd realised I left it open. He oh, came to see me so nice. and gave his bike service and said, I realised you left the door open. I thought you had a bag in the toilet, but you weren't. And I realised you left it open, so I thought I'd stay here. And then when he got his kid from the school opposite and came back and sat there with his child, I thought, <laughs> oh my God, but this, that was so lucky, so, so lucky. Because what we don't have in business, in retail, and I didn't know this until I had a shop, insurance doesn't cover you for theft during working hours. Really? Shops have security guards for a reason. Oh, I see. There was no insurance policy for that. Only when you're closed and locked at night time, then are you covered. So my shop could be emptied, I would have lost everything. Luckily, you, yeah. you got some nice... I think more than one occasion. Because you're working right up to that point where, sorry sir, I've really got to go now. Yes, yes sir, yes madam, that shop, that, that does, does suit you, but can I come back in 15 minutes? I've got to get my kids from school. How do you run a business that way? You know, you just can't. But yeah. I... Well, especially, as you say, a retail business where you've got, always got to be there. You've got yeah. to be the face yeah. and, or else you have to pay staff. Yeah, yeah. so um, that's before I had staff. So then I did get staffing eventually. It was just me time. in the first year, uh, first, first year. six months, seven months. And then after that, local, I wanted to hire local. So we'd hire local teenagers, local young men, women to come work for you. And I went on to the apprenticeship programme to do that. And I think it was the second year of the business, so 2009, if not 2010, where I was interviewed by the BBC for the apprenticeship programme. So that's out there somewhere in the ether where I've done a, a, a minute slot on the BBC breakfast TV programme. 
And yeah, it dawned on me that the apprenticeship program was very important. So it was also quite ridiculous how it worked. You're supposed to take staff on, pay their wages, and get some money back from the government if and when they qualify in the end. So eventually, sometimes you get nothing at all. So you're supposed to get help with their wages. For a small business, it doesn't really work because you need that cash flow. If you're paying out wages, and half the time the staff don't work out, which is a shame. Is it, um, is it about 50% success rate, is I'd it? I'd say less. Oh, less? Less than okay. that for me. I had maybe eight apprentices in the first four years. One was successful. And the others, the others I didn't even put on the programme because they just weren't here for that long. Or they just... It's hard to say that kids sometimes haven't got that work ethic. And when you're doing this programme, you can then see that. So we also took kids from the first year on from schools on their work placements. And that was quite useful to see... Again, work ethic or not, the kids didn't turn up. But oh, really? They, but they, they, they want to come at the end to get it all signed off. Oh, God. So we don't do this. We'd give kids a programme of work. So if you're going to have a work experience programme, you've got to have a programme of work. You're only here for four days, five days. I want you to leave with something that you've done and achieved something. So we'd give them a wheel to build from scratch. So I'd show them how wheel, how wheel actually runs. And we'll take all the spokes off, leave you with a hub, a rim, and the spokes. Mm-hmm. I'll teach you how to build a wheel. So for the duration of your time with us, whilst doing other things, that's your job to, yeah. to, to walk away with. So you can feel you've achieved something. And I'd say, yeah, three of them left with that and loved it. Out, out of how many? I stopped counting. Oh, really? So yeah. you're, you can I, remember three positive success stories out of loads yeah. of work placements? Yeah, I stopped doing it. Oh, that's so sad, because a work placement at a bike shop would be probably one of the best... And it still is. I still get asked a lot. And this is 2012, 2013, where... I had to make a decision that the shop was too small to focus on, sadly, giving up too much of my time to these kids. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd, have, I'd have four at one in one time in yeah. the shop. Tell me about the Penge Cycle Club and how you started that. When you start a business, you've got to look at where your money's coming from, where your business, where your, who your customers are. And i long realised, since having done that, sitting under the bridge and counting the 600 cyclists, that there wasn't any cycling in Penge. There was Dulwich Paragon, a club over in Dulwich, but they'd meet across the palace. There was Nord Paragon mm-hmm. from Nord, but they'd meet over in Purley. There were Sydney Wheelers, their name would be right, but they're over in Alpington. It didn't make any sense to me. Not because I didn't come from a road cycling background, I came from a mountain biking background, where you just go for your cycle anywhere in the world or disparate places. So as a club, I thought they'd be embodied by their name yes. in that area. They just, just, just aren't. So I wanted a pens club, and I thought I need uh, an ongoing business model that would support the shop. And so it's the shop first, and then the club. Yeah, well, the, shortly after. In the business plan, the shop and the club were synonymous. They had to go together. They had to perform at the same time. There was no way I was going to survive without that. Just on commuters. So I, I was actually with my kids at a health club at the time. In we still belonged to a leader, which is now David Lloyd. And there was a lawyer there who said, I'll support the kids' club. Do that. My kids need cycling. Really? Yeah, we'll be, our, your, we'll be your first sponsors. Right. Huzzah! We've done it. I hadn't done anything about this club yet, but then I met two other people in Penn uh, out having lunch. And I said, we're, we're cyclists. We, we'd help out. Brilliant. I mean, it's so lucky. I mean, in your way, the question is how much luck is involved in, in, this, in the business. A lot of luck is involved. But I, I think it's you had the idea and you yes. were spreading that idea out there. Oh, of course And it was, the more yeah. times you spoke to people, the more you're... I think you're... one thing my partner and my, and my mother actually once said is I'm very good at disseminating information. I know. But yeah, I like to either have this idea and see how far I can float things 
and sort of take up it. And yeah, at the time I was very lucky. Yeah. Locally, Jonathan Burns was a cyclist who I met in the Hard Edge Cafe. He said, yeah, I'll be off with that. I'll be off with that. Because I'd gone to the local cycling campaign to see about having a kids club. The angst among older cyclists at the time about having kids clubs attached to their own clubs, you would not believe. People, did, they didn't want it. Oh, because they just wanted to be an adults only yeah, club. Yeah, didn't want it. So I was there trying to forge this new thing as a new person to cycling, if you like, to these old established people, and they weren't happy with it at all. But I've come from a rugby background, and rugby is already embracing kids' clubs, many rugby. So why yeah. wouldn't cyclists' clubs embrace the same? So to, to recap, there's lots of different cycling clubs around South London, yes. but none of them have kids' cycling clubs? or None, none of them had kids' cycling clubs. So what the, what the model was and still is probably, that if you want to join a cycling club as a child, you probably get out of your father or your mother who's a part of the club. You won't get out of the club until you're such an age that you can then cycle comfortably. And I mean, looked after. I once read a story about a great cyclist called Grant Thomas. He just said he went out with mainly flyers, uh, mainly clubs as a youngster. I think mainly as a kid one now, I'm not doing like, uh, it was clubbing Cardiff anyway. And he was just made to suffer. He was like torturous. They went out not really not aware of what they were doing so much. And went on this longest journey ever. And, well, it felt like the longest journey ever. And came back absolutely ruined. And I thought, the way we're moving with looking after our children, raising our children, we've got to be a bit more careful. And many rugby have been taken off. I've been part of Colfians when they started in the rugby section. And I think many rugby is a great way of getting kids in from other backgrounds into rugby whilst having an adult club there, an adult presence there. So they can see that environment. They have their clubhouses. They can have, get involved in that environment. They can move from the mini club to the big junior club to the big club. And the cyclists weren't new to the idea. And so I remember going to one meeting with the London Cycling Campaign in Bromley. And there were so, well, one or two people were so anti it. And John Burns just said, we're having this. We'll do this. This is a great idea. And with that, we sat down and discussed my original plans. My plans were and was at the time just to go into every school locally and create a local kids club in that school. That Those school clubs will then feed enough children into the local Penge club to form a Penge mini a junior CC yeah. club. John managed the whole school system, left me to run the shop. He managed that. He had a full-time job, but he was so enthralled of it, he, he managed it all. So he got a co- all the coaches involved. We got the coaches, we paid for the coaches. The school paid a part of it. And then the idea was that the school then will provide a teacher to work alongside the coach. The teacher will then take over the mini club. And and so this is after school after coaching school club, yeah. of yeah. cycling. Yeah. Sort of once a week or once a week. And every school locally we tried. So we I think we've gone to five schools locally. And it was all going really well and John had had I mean, nothing to do with me. He had such great success with it. And and, and that was before the adult club. Before yeah. before and alongside the adult club. So the adult club started literally probably six, seven months later. But the focus was more on the kids still. Because my philosophy is that you get the kids, you get the parents. If you're a, kid, if you're, if you're a parent, you think your kids are happy and enjoying something, but then we provide them for the adults in the same long, same lines, you know, it's, it's a win-win you know, in many cases. That's my, that's my mentality. Yeah. It's not whether it's true or not, it's just my mentality of how things work. The school thing was working was great success. And then... A body got involved, I can't say who, a body got involved and they just went. And it almost seemed to go overnight. It may not have been that simple, 
but from what from my eyes looking outwards in again it was actually yeah it seems just to go overnight and it's something I'd love to start again really. so how did the adults take off because that's pretty, was, pretty um, active uh, started as a Thursday night ride after the shop yeah. closed we closed the shop at 7.30 every Thursday at the time again I'll be open at 8 in the morning closed at 7.30 because I had an hour off getting the kids from school and the kids were sitting in the back of the shop <laughs> until Sarah came up from work quite often they were sitting in the back of the shop bored well I put a TV in the back of the way. But so the, the adult class started on Thursday night, and we were just a ragtag bunch of people just going out in the evenings. It wasn't as be rude, slick as it is now. Well, we've got a chairman involved, and, and that sort of gathered pace a lot more. And then people realised they couldn't make a Thursday evening as well. So we just have it on a Sunday, a daytime, when people can come along. Herein lies the problems at home. <laughs> um, so it meant going out and getting back before the kids and family were out of bed. So we'd go out at seven in the morning. Icy days was hell, but as it progressed, people we got people got fitter, so we all started at the same level. But those who started at the same time, it's all pretty unfit old mums and dads got fitter and fitter and fitter. Then, what do you do when new people come in who aren't as fit as you are? You form another group, so you've gone from one group now to two groups, and then that's how it progressed. And then, people who were new to cycling completely but couldn't ride more than 10 15 miles, okay. So we then had to form a group on a Thursday night, on the Thursday night ride, so we had two Thursday night ride groups going out, doing arguably the slower group, and which would often take longer because they're slower and doing the hills. And on the Sundays we'd have a group in the morning, seven to nine, and then I'd come back and take another group out at 10 until 12. And then I'd come back, take another group out at one till three, four, four. So I didn't see my family at all. And I worked at those days on Mondays as well. So I went Monday right through to Sunday. Hence more, I'm like, saying seven days a week. And I tried to explain to the family that I'm trying to do this for the business. Yeah. And whilst they understood that, it looked like I was just having fun, going out and doing things, you know. Which I'm sure there was an element of fun. No, a lot of it wasn't always, because sometimes you're so exhausted by the second or third ride, you could barely even pedal up a hill. That you could do in the morning, you couldn't do the third hill. Oh, really? That's, that's like that, that time, right, third time round. But you knew that you wanted these people to feel included. We want to be an inclusive club, I want to be an inclusive shop. So you just suffer there sometimes. The one ride I was doing, I got cramp so badly on the climb, it wasn't even the climb for me. But because I've been out and done 60 miles in the morning, and then done 60 miles or 40 miles in the lunchtime one, before lunchtime one, and then I'm doing 20 miles of this after the lunchtime one. So, you know, it's a lot of work in one day and you haven't actually eaten properly in between. Yeah. You know, you're not looking after yourself. And there were variable speeds. So the first one in the morning would be at a faster speed. Not as fast as I would go now, but faster speed. And then one would be down at 14 miles an hour, then the next one would be down at 10 miles an hour. And, yeah, your body's just exhausted. And then you've got to go home and do a stock and then pay the wages and everything else. So it was a full-on yeah. job, yeah. running your own business yeah. and running a cycling club and at the same time. And when we bring all that... My other mandate, for starting the kids club, my mandate was to get disadvantaged kids into cycling. That was my first and foremost mandate. So to that end, we gave bikes to local schools or helped them to maintain their bicycles. We got them get paid for it, but not as much as we charge other people. And some of the bikes would be stolen. So what I decided to do was I paid for a Velodrome session at Hearn Hill, where we get local kids coming down, the kids would then ride the bikes, enjoy it, hopefully join the club afterwards. So I paid for the session. The problem with that was I had to get parents to get their kids there themselves because I'm not CRB checked anymore, I'm not in the NHS anymore. So I didn't want to drive all these kids down. 
or hire a van for that, for that, for that reason. No one turned up. Parents just didn't have the wherewithal to get their kids to the valley just over the hill. In, in, oh, really? In Dunwich. And you or, paid for the session? Uh, or just weren't interested. Yeah. Kids were interested, but the parents yeah. just weren't interested. Yeah. So what I then did was paid for a bicycle polo. Have you ever heard of that? Bicycle polo is a really weird-looking sport. It's polo, as in horse polo, but on bicycles. Instead of using actual mallets, they use old ski poles built with gas pipes and a ball. So I paid for a session one day in a park to happen in Pendrack, and it was the most amazing thing. It really was. And I did it in such a way that people walking through the park would see it, and so I would get involved or ask about it, be it kids or adults. And there were a group of kids who were disaffected, should we say, be kind. And they came and said, we did my court, this is our court, and we want our court. If we want our court, come play for it. We're not playing on dead man's sport. Uh, well, it's not a dead man's sport, it's a really good looking sport. Anyway, I haven't got a bike, a bike of rubbish. Have a try. And they, one of those kids are very sort of bullish, and they want to, they really want to have a go, but they, they're trying to save face with their friends. So I challenged the hardest one of the lot to have a go. Absolutely loved it. Aww. He nailed it. He actually really nailed it. Became really good at it. And I, what I hope from that was that they'll then go on to other ventures elsewhere. I, that day it cost me so much money when I looked at the books. I couldn't afford to do it again, unfortunately. Aww. So we did, we did then do weekly coaching sessions, which I put on. Which I, I couldn't afford coaches, so I ran myself. For about six weeks of, of a summer. And we've got a lot of kids involved that way. So I, I wanted to have a bigger league set up. I just couldn't do everything. So I left that, let that just run out. I could have got people involved to, to run it, but that would have been paying out more money than I had. Yeah. And so I had to still say, look. Just it just it. sounds like you, you tried lots of different things, yeah. but and some of them didn't work out, but along the way, your community was building. Yes. Because of be people, fair, was yeah, new, yeah, people knew yeah. that you your intentions were yeah. good and... Well, I, I like to believe that. I, yeah. mean, you know, I wasn't asking anyone for anything uh, at all money-wise or financially. I just wanted their kids to get them bicycles. I wanted customers in the shop yeah. as well from that. Yeah. Um, not to buy bicycles, we stopped selling bicycles in 2012. Um, but just to get people on bikes in Penge. Different way of life, different way of living, different way of travelling. Um, yeah. Lifestyle, and so and so then, when, how long have you been in the current premises? And so my lease ran out yeah. in twenty twelve. So I moved to the shop, to now a Polish shop, two doors down from where I currently am, with a landlord who I could have killed. Oh my god, this guy was terrible. He made lies. He took me to court for a bit of the owing, and then locked my stock stock up when I moved out, and as I paid him the money, I didn't own a penny. He. He had badly managed the shop, so the shutters weren't working very well, crushed a bicycle of mine. He didn't pay his bill properly on time himself, and I had bills come to me for him. Um, he'd walk in and out of the shop, shouting, this is my shop, I can do what I like, what I want to do. No, Michael, we have a contract. This is my shop currently. You cannot just walk in. Mm. He was horrid, he really was. So, so you moved in there in so 2012? I, so I moved out of, the, in, there, in there, May 2012, moved in there, June 2012, just after my luncheon with them. Imagine. The Queen? Yeah. I moved out of there in the February 2013 to where I currently am. How did you find that? I begged the landlord. I, looked, I said, look, I'm going to out of this place. Obviously, all the landlords know each other. He knew my landlord. I said, yeah, okay. I said, I've been waiting for your shop for ages because you've got a garden. I want your garden. And we just struck up a deal. And he's quite a relaxed guy, but again, he's a landlord. And to be fair to him, I played him about a little bit because, you know, with, with business, you haven't got the cash flow. You can't always pay when you want to pay. And you have best intentions to do what you want to do, what you can do. But as long as you're honest with people, I think people will be honest about you. So he's been quite supportive in that sense. 
he could kick me out a long time ago when they've got early years when I was having trouble with Michael next door and he had to as an arbiter to that even though he knew as I knew that I didn't know Michael a penny but he take me to court there's in judgment against me he locked up people's built bikes because he just wanted what he wanted which is more money you know I could never be a landlord because I, I couldn't qualify I wouldn't no, qualify in that no. way I, I don't think Sometimes, I'm a dick but yeah. I'm not that sort of <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bloke so therefore I'm a dick um, my, my daughter would have you believe I think you've you got, you got to stay on a good side of your landlord so my lease is up in three years time on this one so we'll see so, so you moved into the new premises which had a bit more scope for yeah. development yeah. and that was nearly 10 years ago now yeah. again it, for me it's always been when there's cash do it when if there's not don't try it if the time is right the time was right 10 years ago to put the coffee in I couldn't afford it I couldn't justify buying a machine for nearly £13,000 when I could barely afford stock and we just moved in I couldn't justify hiring four other staff to run that whilst I was still paying an apprentice and not paying money myself. I couldn't justify promising to deliver and then failing. Equally, I want to have a beer license, alcohol license. Again, that's, that's, that's an original business model. That's actually in there still. It's going to come to fruition, I think, next year with that one because the club are still clamoring for it. They keep asking for it. They've asked for it for the last. Since we had a garden, they've asked for it. I had a visit from somebody who runs such a place and he's very, very, very successful in what he does. So he knows what he's talking about. You know, and he, said to, he actually just said to me, do you have a bar here? I said, no. My God, this would be great for a bar. I said, I know the plan is such that I want one in here, but when do I find time to A, do my course, alcohol course, and B, mentally and physically, do time to do the VAT and stuff on alcohol, as well as my own stuff, on bikes and on coffee. You know, it's quite taxing. Because you've got to be aware of what attracts VAT, for example, in coffee. Is it the coffee? No. Is it the chocolate? Ah. Is that a sweet or is that a chocolate? Some things attract VAT, some things don't. And then I've got to switch and pivot onto alcohol. Now, how does that work? And it's all on you. It's all on me. It's all on safety. And everyone tells you when you do your alcohol course about child safety is a primary thing. When do you tell a 16-year-old? No. Not always. You know. How do you tell somebody? There's a, I found there's a book you've got to have, or you should ought to have, of when you reject customers. I didn't know that, but I'm done the course yet, but I'm trying to find the things out before. So all these things I've got to put in place, you know. And mentally, I don't think I've got the time to do it, or the ability to do it, but I need to do it. It's about extracting yourself from the running the business to being above the business, but yeah. that's very I'm difficult. I'm putting somebody else in place to do that, just yeah. that. But if I do that, then I've got to sacrifice something and say, okay, right, so now I need to pay a business manager or someone, someone to do this. How are we going to fund that? Okay, it's like I've done a business again. Okay, so the alcohol will bring in this much, outgoing will be that much, this person's standard is going to be there. It's interesting perhaps to talk a little bit about the pandemic and the effect on your shop because yeah. well, it, shop, it forced shop, a lot of changes, didn't it? It, 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 it? it forced a lot of changes, a lot of changes for the better. To be fair, so we did. I made the decision to close the shop to staff and to customers during COVID, even though we were seen as a service that was able to be open. I didn't know I went in the door, so I went online and found a way of. Well, actually, this is not fair. The first few days we had a queue for the shop, like most shops did, but our queue and Tesco's queue were merging together and in an unhealthy way. Um, because Tesco's queue would come out and snake all the way down the road 
my queue to be on my patio, but it's how do you get to my queue if you've got to go through the Tesco's queue because they'll take up the whole pavement. So I decided to go online and find a way of getting customers to drop bags off or we pick them up or both. And we decided to do a booking system. Now booking systems have always been out there, but they've never been always that good. You see a shop, you email the shop to book your biking. No, don't want that. That's more work for me. I've got to then look at where I'm free. Let's have a calendar, like a hairdressers or something we'll do. So that's what we did. We put in a business calendar where you can go online. It made a lot of work initially, like to put all the actual services we offer, create a few more online. Think how a customer would think, what is it I want done to my bicycle? I want this bearing fixed or headset fixed or whatever it fixed. And you can book it online, pay the fee, a labour fee up front, because one thing I was very scared of people booking and then I'll turn it up. I've got COVID, I can't come now, but you've just taken a slot from somebody else who could have had it. Pay the fee for the, for the labour and then pay for any parts as and when your bike's been repaired. So we'll discuss with you what parts need. And actually, believe it or not, it actually worked. It really, I was, yeah, most nights trying to get it working and it actually works. We still use it to this day. Yeah. It's, it's now a new model. I have used it myself. And going back to how we used to be, just bring it down, leave it, we'll get to it at some point. I saw some shops still are. And those shops are very busy. And it's really funny because people tell me, oh, the shop down the road has got a queue. You haven't got a queue. Nope, we don't. Come in, put your bike, leave your bike, go. But why that? you're not busy, you've got a queue. Oh, we're busy, we've booked all day. But where's your queue? We don't need one. You leave your bike and you go. So, so COVID changed a lot of how we worked. It certainly changed me in terms of looking at how work is conducted and what we do with people's bicycles and what we do with people and how we connect with people. And I think another thing that since then we've actually enhanced the business. So we've actually used the space at that time to develop the garden. The garden was a wasteland before. It had three or four bars buried in the garden, showers, toilets, sofas. <laughs> it was disgusting. A customer could tell me, no, wait, I remember this garden, what it used to be like. You know, and I didn't get any money from the government, didn't qualify, sort of my life. I applied twice, didn't get anything. I paid my staff, coffee staff, while they were off, out of my own funds. Didn't give them full salaries, I couldn't afford that. But whilst they're not working, I gave them all something. And most of my staff aren't staff that would be loyal to us long term because there were other people doing other jobs before. So one woman came to us, she was a sound recording engineer. Had no work on, she was absolutely useless. I love her, but she was absolutely useless. Ellie, sorry, I'm talking about you, darling, you know I am. <laughs> absolutely useless. But when she was off, I paid her part-time money uh, for being off and not having any work. I knew she had nothing else. And then when things got better, she got a job back doing her stuff and she left. It didn't actually come back to us at all. That's fine. Sorry, Ellie. <laughs> but that's what happens, you know, in small business. You get people who are local, working in coffee. They're not lifers in that sense. It's something to get them through when they were big or school, or school children. But I thought you have to be fair to people, you know. How do you look after people otherwise? We've got to look after our community. And that's yeah. where it starts for me, it's community. I think I was once quoted as saying that the local shop is your heart, is your beating heart of the community. And I still believe that without a local business and a community to support a business, which we've just seen, there is no community. And I, I, I fully believe that. Oh, completely. I think your, your shop is that. Um, your so, shop is doing that. But I think... Covid made me realise that a lot more. Oh, and me too. Um, Absolutely. Where, where we were all using Tesco's and Sainsbury's and, and Asda's and the rest of it, but the local stores had to survive as well. You know, so uh, that made me realise that a lot more. 
Uh, I'm very grateful for the community. I get emotional again. I stop. Do you th- do you think it's been the good decision for you to set up your bike shop and run your bike shop? Yes, because I told my kids the same thing. I told people in the shop the same thing. If you do a business or work just for money, that's a job. If you do a business or work and you actually love what you do, that's a passion. If you can get a job and a passion in one, like a football player, then that becomes unending. You know, the, the reward you get from that is unending, it really is. What are your hopes for the future for SE20 Cycles, yourself and the Penge Cycling Club? Oh, God. Is there a future? In that, I don't mean there's a future, there's a future, surely there is, but it's a daily task. I look at my business plan regularly, I see where I'm at, I see where I'm heading, I amend. Hopefully, in 10, 15 years' time, I'm still working in the shop. I don't like to think of retirement, personally, I don't. In 10 years' time, I'll be 65, so I like to think I'm still working in some way, some capacity. The club has com- continued to thrive. Um, be a children's club. The children's club still is still there, not and not lost. There's coffee, there's alcohol at the bar in the shop, and the shop's still on the high street. Look, I'm hoping for the future, but outside of my control is things like rent and rates and and the financial crisis. So one never knows. But it won't be. And there's a lot of what we feel my lack of trying, as, as I've always tried and, and strive, striven to try. My hardest to do measure the business success, really. You know, Wonderful. success for me is not loads of money in the bank. It's loads of happy customers and returning customers. That's success for me. Brilliant. Thanks, Winnie, and I hope you continue to enjoy the ride Thank at SE Twenty Cycles. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to speak to you. Okay, let's go back and complete the story with how Winnie became passionate about cycling in the first place, and I love how it was an injury yet again that spurred him into action. I hadn't cycled ever really because as a kid we couldn't afford much. My mum bought me a bicycle once, and my first bicycle I got, I think I was about 10, 11. It was always too small for me. She paid for it over months, every year or so, and oh. I rode it anyway. It's a little orange thing. I rode it anyway just to show a job, but I was too oh. big for it. I was way too big for it. But I'm so grateful to get it. Yeah. Yeah. I took it back to the shop in Forest Hill at the time and they tried to make it, get me a bigger bike and it didn't have anything, so I took it home again. Yeah. And that was my first bike. So I hadn't yeah. cycled until I was 21, just gone 21, and never cycled between that then, really. Uh, I'd run a lot at school, I'd, you know, played rugby lots. Never never cycled, never, never, never. I'd been living near the velodrome, I saw cyclists going by, but it never occurred to me that was a sport I could do because it seems very much middle-class sport. You've got to be able to afford a decent bicycle uh, to go to the velodrome. I didn't know black people then, at that time, were cycling the velodrome. It wasn't even a thing across my radar. So, yeah, I had an injury, and the Brook Hospital suggested I get to cycling to help rehab my knee. Uh, the Brook Hospital was in Shooter's Hill, on a hill. So I actually got bought a bicycle from a catalogue. I think it was K's back in the day. And the pink, heavy thing. Pink. Pink. I'm, I'm, I'm a weird guy. I'm, my favourite colour is purple. I bought this pink bike. Didn't think about the colour, didn't really care. And I rose from every wood up a hill, once I was Shooter's Hill, 
down the other side of the shooting hill to the hospital, to my, my appointment there, with the bicycle, the showman bought a bicycle, that's going to do it. And then the physio said to me, why didn't you want to work? To the city, you bet. <laughs> but I did, in the next, very next day, after my appointment, so rather than a Sunday, from Abbey Wood, through Greenwich, Woolwich, Greenwich, Deptford Creek, to Tower Bridge, got lost, because I should have gone to London Bridge, and I thought, where am I? It's Tower Bridge, I quite like this. And it was all desolate around there at the time. And then I had to ask directions to get back towards Moorgate because I didn't actually know the area that well by bike at the time. I knew my tube and taxi, that's what I knew. And I thought, I could do this. I went home that night, Sunday evening, and I slept really well. <laughs> <laughs> very, very well. But I woke up Monday morning, undeterred. Yeah. And I rode to work in the rain. And that was at a time when we also had lots of train strikes. And it was horrible. And, but I started cycling. Never had a train issue again in my life after that, really. It was cheaper. It was cheaper. But the story went on because I was then riding, and I'd see this, not that you see now, you can ride a bike now in London or anywhere, there's not just you on a bike, there's about 100 people around you on a bicycle. Back then, two or three of us, I would have a whistle, and a whistle would blow to alert drivers that were in the, they're coming along. It was a courier thing, couriers rode bicycles and they whistled to the people. So I had a whistle, and then you'd ride, and then you'll see the same characters every day riding to work, and you go into a mini race. As any commuter will tell you, it's, it's insane, but you do. You see that person, you know that person's gonna be up here at two minutes past eight, so you're gonna be ready to catch that person up again. And there's, there's one guy riding, he'd ride from Plumstead. In the first year, I couldn't get anywhere near him. He was on a good, smart looking bike, with his arms out here. I didn't know what it was called then, it was called a triathlon bike, I didn't know that at the time. And he'd ride out with his arms out there, and he'd be like, just pelting along. And I'm on this pink heavy thing thinking, oh, I'm going to catch him one day. <laughs> Eventually I caught him. He had a puncture, but I don't care, I caught him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he rode off again, said hi and rode off. He said he'd seen me a few times. And then I got fitter and fitter and fitter. And uh, eventually we actually managed to be on his back wheel for most of the journey, the technical sections. And then after lights, he'll just go off again and leave me for dead. And then one day I'd gone to the local bike I pass all the time, Tudor Street on your bike. There's this guy in there, I said, that's the guy, that's the guy I told you about, the guy on that pink bike. And he was, he, this guy was a kid, to come from Abbey, from Plumstead, and I had to catch, try and catch him up every day. He worked in the bike shop, fated. And that's it, that's my story. And I, I was in that shop every single day, at lunch breaks, I'd get the tube back to London Bridge from, from, from uh, Moorgate to go and spend time in the, in the bike shop. Oh, I see. I became an absolute cycling nutter, I really did. In your 20s? Yeah, in my 20s, early 20s. So I'd been there at that shop more often than I needed to be, because you had to get to know the parts, the, I uh, bought my first good bike from there, a race for the shop team. And for people that are not really into cycling or, or know, not know about cycling racing, yeah. what, what's that? So, that, so actually this was an off-road mountain bike race, yeah. but in London, so there's no off-road in London, right? But back in the day, where the current Olympic Park is, there's be a road racing track for road bike and an off-road section in the middle of dirt track they'd use, and they'd make a mountain bike route for it. So you'd just go out and do laps. A horde of you would meet up, Start on the start line, whistle will go off and you'll race and literally just do a certain route and laps. This beast wave, as it was called, as known, had a very long, well, short but steep hill, like a drop-off hill. And my first race, I crashed hellishly in my first descent, because I must ask my language, but I'd say that. I, I cracked myself. And <laughs> there was That's little, not much better. There was a little stream, <laughs> not, sorry, there was a little stream, and I caught hold of the branch before I went to the stream. And part of it broke off in my wrist. Um, I don't have a mark anymore. What, a, a bit of stick? A bit of stick. Oh. And 
Undeterred, I, I just shoved that off and kept on racing and got better at this lap as I got, uh, this route as I got, as I, as I went round. I did this all summer. I actually loved it. But after the first race, I needed a new bike. So I needed a bike, provided me, I bought a new bicycle from them and got into racing. And that's, got me, that's what got me into cycling and into racing. And from that point on, I then left my work to focus on cycling. I went, I went to race for a team in Switzerland. They were, they were a good team. I wasn't. Uh, wasn't but you obviously things don't restrict you. So decisions like that, you just give things a go. That's your I, I sort of mentality. Regret. I don't regret. I hate to be that person in 50 years' time that I could have tried that, but I didn't. Do you not worry about risks? And I'm not risk averse. You're not risk averse? No. But what scares you then, do you think? <sighs> not trying my best or something. Not giving something a go. When I was, young, when I was younger, it'd be not asking that girl out. You know, I was, I'm not the most sociable person, but if I wanted to ask somebody out, I'd ask somebody out and forget the consequences if they said no, how you'd feel afterwards. You know, if one person said maybe, ah, that's not a no, great. <laughs> 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 Where should I meet you then? <laughs> but I don't know what terrifies me, I don't know what scares me. I really don't. So I haven't come across it yet, I don't think. So it's a kind of, to sum, sum you up, you, you give things a go. Yeah. You're, you're, it's not always hang the consequences. It's like you know there are consequences, but you weigh the consequences up, yeah. and you do as long as you've done your research on yeah. things. Like as, like sitting outside Penge Bridge and counting. Yes, it, as long as you've done put the effort in. If it then fails, it fails. But it hasn't failed because you didn't try it, or you don't, or you don't want to regret not trying it. <laughs>